rescue attempt? Might be. Yes. Saturday? What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to the final Film Fight Club of 2018. It has been a wonderful year sharing films and fighting with everyone. We'll be back next year, but it is our final show. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the only show in Sydney that's looking out for you if you enjoy uh, watching films and also picking on random strangers, the final punching people countdown. in the face, and all of these other lovely activities. Not that we encourage at all. The final countdown. This is our fun fact. This is our fifty third show for the year. We did fifty three shows this year because they're fifty three weeks in twenty eighteen. Wow, that's an odd number of weeks. Isn't there fifty two weeks usually? Not in twenty eighteen, apparently. Because it had a leap year. You said why? I think that's it. Yeah, we'll go with that. Okay, cool. Yeah. So this has been Glenn Falkenstein, Falcon Screen, and we have freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Our very own David Stratton. Thank you. And we have. Chris Evans from <laughs> of all, all, all things about town and place and Suburbs. everywhere. Um, <laughs> that's Chris. That means, so, we, we, okay, we actually started recording this show earlier, and the, the, Glenn made an obscure reference to the joke we used in the previous attempt to record this episode. And so he's nice. That's a, that's a little nice. bit of a glimpse behind the curtain it, it's, of it's how good. the film Fight Club magic is made. It's like it's like the, it's like the first part of the Game of Thrones. It's never ever going to be seen. So, so okay. uh, talking about Game of Thrones, actually, George R. R. Martin. I'm not sure if he's going to actually finish the book before he's, he's not die. going to finish. I, I actually just bought the uh, history of Westeros, uh, the the Aegon's conquest and 300 years prior to Robert's rebellion yeah. in um, Castlemaine. I'm looking forward to reading it. No, yeah. I think if he finishes the series, it'll be a miracle. He's, well, each, each film, each book takes longer than the last one, and he's not even sure he can wrap it up in two. As the saying it's not goes, going to finish. you know, you finish the series, the fifth series finishes you, mm. essentially. Well, I look forward to more Game of Thrones novels, the, as do the prisoners in uh, Logan, Logan, Lucky. Lucky, Logan Lucky. Very funny. Yeah. Um, but then we're not talking about Logan Lucky this week. We are having our second Netflix special. Earlier in the year, it was our third episode. We talked about all the things that were screened on Netflix, and we are doing that again now. We promise not to take the piss out of Netflix and be nice to them, in this episode at least, even though we hate... Um, They're doing a lot of good... What do you mean we hate? They're doing great stuff. We hate in general, but we don't hate Mm. Netflix. Exactly. I just think... Just we hate. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, That can be our our tagline. It's it's Film Fight Club. We hate. It's like, my favorite line of Dodgeball was like, just remember our motto, aim low. And we're just like, we hate. Yeah. (laughs) Netflix are doing great stuff, including Roma, which is currently screening on Netflix. The best thing on Netflix right now. You can see that before you see anything we're about to discuss later in the episode. Hopefully still playing in cinemas from tomorrow. Otherwise, run out and catch it in the light show tonight a few cinemas are, are still playing it yeah honestly yeah. It, it deserves a big screen experience I mean otherwise just hook up your phone or your laptop into a TV or a bigger screen or a see it on the largest screen you can do yeah, not yeah. as the Netflix CEO is suggesting watch it on your phone exactly no no or, you know, or, or better still We'll give you Will Wong's address. Go to his house and watch it in a 4K projector. That's, that's the oh, closest we're, we're, we're Hi, well, shout out to Will. We're not, we're, we're not doing that. No. No, okay, but yeah. But if you do want it, let me know and I'll ask Will and you'll arrange something. It's a... <laughs> wow. And it's... Virat's it, it pushing is into territory that he, he's not permitted, I think, to be broadcasting about on the radio. No, it's fine. Um, no, I will not do it. We'll not do it. Clarifying, I'm not... Yeah, we don't do but we do think but we will find <laughs> so just send us a message Look, if, if you absolutely can't see Roma the big screen then get in touch with us and we'll, we'll make it happen so <laughs> Roma is the best thing on Netflix right now but there are other films which we'll be talking about in the course of this program again our last for the year including The Ballad of Buster Scruggs the new film by the Coen Brothers Hold the Dark starring Alexander Skarsgård and Riley Coe and a number of others. The second season of The Sinner, fast one of my favourite new shows. Shirkers, Mowgli, not The Jungle Book, Mowgli, yes, there was that other one which Netflix bought up. They were produced around the same time. and and One was delayed forever. Yep, Cam, the new Bloomhouse film, and The Other Side of the Wind, which um, Orson Welles, um, several decades after he has passed away, has managed to release to his great credit. Return from the dead. Good, Good work, Orson. So the first film we will be talking about is The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. It is an amalgam of six anthology films set 
in the no. post-Civil War era. You mean it is one anthology film amalgamating six <laughs> stories. <laughs> Which is exactly what I meant to say. <laughs> it's yes. okay. I'm sure yes. the listeners got it. Yeah. There, there, there are six stories in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and it is set in the immediate smart people, post-Civil you know. War West. And it stars a number of Coen Brothers' favorites and excellent character actors. Um, the films, for me, vary in terms of quality. The actors do not vary in terms of quality. They're, they're all excellent. Just yeah. to know Joel and Ethan know how to pick their performers. What did we think of The Ballad of Buster Scruggs? I thought this was really strong. I think there is always going to be variance in how much the story grabs you um, when it comes to anthology films. But uh, there is that variance here. But I think the quality of every story is at a high enough level that the variety kind of compensates a little bit for the some of the dips in, in quality. I was always interested in the, these films, and when they weren't so interesting, they had the good sense to end fairly quickly. The longest story in here is the best. Um, mm, yeah, I'd agree with that. The ones that are the one-joke ones are wrapped up pretty summarily, including the James Frank one, which I think really is just about the final line, which has been carried very strongly in the promotional material. It is, but it that and a reworking of Maverick, by it, the way. It still featured some excellent action and comedy. Oh, the scene where he's running after him at the yeah, well. Incredible. Oh, that was that was I think brilliant. The Coen brothers, as directors right now, I think are at the top of their game. They, you know, the this for I think this film is much better than um, Hail Caesar. I'd agree. Ooh, ooh, oh, yeah, totally. Very easily. Mm, oh, but but once again, I think Chris and I are in agreement very easily. And These Glenn days, seems yeah. to be the divergent. All, yeah. I, was a sim- I was a Simple Man fan. Serious Man? Serious Man. What did I say? Simple, simple Man. Oh, dear. Serious you are, Man. You are a pretty simple man. Oh, man. That's, I was thinking Jesus. of single. Wow. That, 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 that's harsh. A very, very special, you know, heartwarming holiday episode of Film <laughs> yes. Fight Club. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy holidays, everyone. Yep. Um, okay. It's okay. So, Talking about a serious man. Yeah. I, the, all of these stories are fairly dark and cynical, um, but I think the Coen brothers managed to vary the, the their approach to that enough that it doesn't just become depressingly one note some of the you know the like the first two stories approach their sort of bitter bitter um outcomes through the lens of comedy and the third I yeah the third um the Liam Neeson one yeah 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 there is comedy in that but it's getting darker and bleaker I yeah, think the f- as the stories yeah. progress, they do take you know yeah. the the tragic comedy gives way to some actual tragicness, I guess. And that's that's right. And the fourth the fourth one gives more notes of lightness. I think they they knew when to switch tones so the thing didn't become overbearing. That are my favorite scene of the whole film with the prospecting. That was Tom Waits very as, as a yeah. prospector doing really a great strong. performance. Um, I think yeah that that was very strong but it wasn't my favorite i think which i think speaks to the quality of this whole project i really liked i really liked the third story actually but hmm. my favorite was the fifth the only one that i think really didn't work was the sixth the third story i liked because they used like liam neeson is a giant he, they used him so well in the frame in this he's used to great effect usually with actors who are that tall the hugo weavings the elizabeth Debicki's, liam neeson's they try to put them on the level playing field literally but here they said this man is literally a towering visage mm. and we can use that to the impact of the film both comic and incredibly serious the very very bleak ending yeah which is why it was nice to see the film suddenly subvert your expectations in the fourth story and it's interesting how turns in the narrative repeated themselves and twist around. For example, something that happens in the fourth film happens again in the fifth film. Yeah. Since it's already happened, you know, you're not expecting to see that, that same kind of twist again, but when it appears the second time, it's in a very different context, a very different effect. I think... Um, the Coen brothers sometimes... There's so much skill in the writing. Yeah. Sometimes the Coen brothers can uh, sort of be too smart for their liking, and I, I feel cheated at times by just how they treat their audience in trying to be too clever but I think in this this film yeah. they're appropriately clever like when they're at the top of their game they don't misjudge you and let the audience figure out things and even when they're trying to pull one fast one over you mm. it's done in a manner servicing the story and actually 
helps you understand or servicing something bleakness in the narrative and trying to subvert that. In this sense, they had the good sense to balance both expectations because sometimes I feel they get caught up in their own smartness. They have such a gift for dialogue. Yeah. Just, oh, the, the Buster Scruggs himself, that first That sequence. opening. That's oh, really... so good. I, it clicked to me that that for opening sequence is really Looney Tunes brought to life. Yeah. His Bugs Bunny walking around addressing the camera in mm-hmm. first person then tricking people who come after guns, him with guns to humiliate themselves. Yeah, Violent it, slapstick. It felt like an Elmer, Elmer Fudd. The, the ending felt like Elmer Fudd. The rest of... Yeah, Bugs is a perfect analogy. Yep. And, and the character actor who pulled that off. I'm just going to look up his name now. He is it, was... Is it Tim Blake Nelson? Tim Blake Nelson, yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, incredible. what a performance. You know who, something you forget soon. You know who else was incredible in this? Someone I've never heard of called Bill Heck, who played the um, man who falls in love with Zoe Kazan uh, guiding the caravans along in the fifth story of the film, which is one that... Probably the only one that's about truly pure-intentioned, nice people. Yeah. When a lot of this film is about the dark sides of life and people who exploit each other, moral ambiguity or outright amorality, whereas this this is a tragedy about forces outside of themselves affecting, you know, people who have good intentions. It's, it, um, I, I think it's in keeping with a lot of the morality that the Cullen brothers have put into films, like, yeah. a, like a serious man. I mean... The Coen brothers especially are at the top of their game when they do... I feel the smartness sometimes hides their actual talent in telling humane stories because yeah, they, they get caught be, up in that immoralistic world, which is mm. clever, but it feels once removed at times. As I think Suburbicon did. Oh, yeah. yeah, no, yeah. So, you, you know, where you feel like they, these are all characters which would coexist in this alternate universe which the Coen brothers have created. But one... They sort of merge the sensibilities of this humane characters, which you can actually meet with pure intentions, but with that zany, absurd twist and that their sort of style take on it, it actually merges and becomes something way more sinister and heartfelt. Like it, it becomes scarier because it's closer to life. Yeah, I think the Coen brothers are often, through their whole career, people have accused them of grotesquerie um, and misanthropy in the way that they represent such a grotesque view on human life. And I think. A lot of the time that is accurate, but the 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 some would say nihilism of their of their vision can in I think the projects that speak more to me be put into a very humane context where it's it, there is a deep tragedy in how powerless we are with our good intentions and the the way that we struggle anyway. Um, Another fil- a film by the Coens that really Lee touches Lee storyline really really very much and it nailed that yeah and I think that's that um, storyline reminded me of Inside Lewin Davis in the way that they were commenting on you know in that tr- bleak winter setting as an artist continues onwards to diminishing effect oh, God, it's almost yeah, like that yeah. that film condensed a, a more brutal version of that film condensed down into just a a, a very pure simple shot. Um, I think I think there's some really great moments in this film. Oh so. yeah, I have to give it to um, Ralph Innocent, who was in The Witch in a small role in this. Clancy Brown is always a superb character actor, and was just absolutely I mean, absolutely wonderful. I, I, I mean, mm. there's six stories with six very different shades, and yet this film at no point really feels well. stretched or you know when they need to end, they do end. They they have very good sense of yeah. pacing and direction. That's right, which. It's it's amazing because there's six stories in this film, and some of them are really just short little sketches. Yeah, the ones exactly. that tend to be based around a simple comedic idea. Yeah. Um. The but the fourth, sorry, the fifth one, which I mentioned before, is really a story where you you be, get drawn into the characters and their drama. I think that's one. The fifth story is one of the best things the Coen Brothers it, have ever really done. Challenging, shot. challenging to pace it because to 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 understand those emotional beats mm-hmm. and see you know which one the short punchy ones and then let which scenes to breathe and which story to breathe. That's right. And yet. The, put them all together in that particular order exactly. it actually works this, I mean as a film it works not just an anthology well, how, how did we feel about the sixth story because I wasn't so into that I, I know but it felt like a denouement and after the fifth one I felt you wanted some coming back down to earth time yeah like I, I, need, I needed that sort of release and I felt in a way I'd already had that emotional high of the fifth one that I knew where, where, where it was so I wanted a softer landing and I felt the I, sixth one gave me that I, I it's felt, not the most impressive but I felt because it came out of the fifth one, I think this it was a perfect in terms of where it was in the movie. I think the sixth one is trying to 
create a satisfying way of tying all of these stories together um, through some sort of allusions to supernatural forces. At least that's how I chose to read it. Other people might see it in a different way. Um, you know, uh, to really orient it, this, this is a, a bunch of stories about death and how we how we deal with death and what we leave behind, who we who, and the people we are as we die. That's what I thought that this but, film was really. But once again, orienting the film to be about that, but. I didn't find that satisfying. I think it would have been better to let the first five stories just sit for themselves and get out of there quickly. Once again, because the sixth one basically encapsulates my problem with the Coen brothers, which they fall into again and again. I mean, they they tell this amazingly humane story with this quirky, zany twist in the fifth one, which is immensely scary because of the implications that it has. And then they fall into this trap of trying to be too clever again in the sixth one, trying to give a broader point, when the point that they've made with the fifth one is quite valid and quite strong in itself like they should be able to trust that and let you know their own mastery hold because they are pretty good and they don't need to make a point about it every now and then and I feel that they were too much they know how clever they are yeah in, some, is, in a lot of ways they are Buster Scruggs which, which is insufferable sometimes because the misanthrope we, who yeah, likes I mean, to show off we, we, we know they're clever but you don't need to tell us that how clever am I look at me all the time they, they, gets, they, they are hit and miss. I mean, yeah. They made some. I'm not a bard and think fan. The Hudsucker proxy. Man, the lady killers and intolerable cruelty. Oh, they uh, made some not not yeah, good at all. Far, films. Fargo is and some absolutely brilliant. Intolerable cruelty was not a good film. Fargo, a brother out there was mixed. Which um, was not a good film. Sorry. Intolerable cruelty. Intolerable okay. cruelty. It was. Yeah, it was. It's all okay, right. Catherine Zeta Jones is incredibly hard in that movie. Sorry. That's not a comment on Coen Brothers. I'm just making a point. And and George Clooney was killed. So there's there's some positives. So so those were the so we can watch any Catherine Zeta Jones or George Clooney better Catherine Zeta Jones or George Clooney film. George Clooney was not wearing a kilt in any of the other movies. So I think yeah, that, that's like a plus. I would say a recommendation purely based on that. And then what were the later ones? Um, I, I didn't see Burn After Reading. It's okay. Burn After Reading was good. Uh, I guess the, the point it came, it sort of reestablished what they're about. I, so I've it, really enjoyed most of the, 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 um, the last decade since No Country yeah. for Old Men. I think it's been really oh, strong. Except it's Babacon. Oh, yeah, but Sabobicon they didn't direct. Who knows how much of that was ruined but, but, by but also, George Clooney? No, no Country for Old Men. Who rewrote it. Yep. No Country for Old Men, I, I guess, is that perfect marriage in terms of the Javier Bardem character, which is a very Coen Brothers character kind of thing, you know, this agent of chaos, you know, and in this agent of chaos. And, but merging that philosophy style, which they have, which is all about making a broader comment, but also rooting it into some kind of I think, human... I think the most, most successful... Humane story for me has been inside Lewin Davis, which I think is very humane and also expressing and tragic a, and yeah, a dark, tragic philosophical viewpoint in a less um, ham-fisted way than No Country for Old Men. Maybe that's a strange word to use to describe that film, but I found it almost a little bit overly oppressive in the way that it moralized to you. I, I, I found it fun until the end when they alluded to the emergence of a very significant character in the folk movement, yeah. and that was like, okay, we, oh, we, we know what era, we know we're in, we don't need yeah. to go in that yeah. direction. And, and Fargo, I mean, I mean, we we don't give enough credit to it, but it basically was the antecedent to many of the other movies that came after, like Wind River, which is all about look at what these vast expanse landscape do to people in these kind of situations and how absurd choices Fargo are made. Fargo is a great film. And also the TV show was really good too. So I mean, we wouldn't have a TV show without the universe. The TV show is okay. Yeah. Uh, the first season uh, was pretty good. Second season, yeah, okay. So that is the current <laughs> brothers' Ballad of Buster Scruggs. It is now streaming on Netflix, as are all the films we are discussing, including Hold the Dark, which is starring Jeffrey Wright, who plays Felix Leicht in the James Bond series, as a writer who is hired by Riley Coe, who is the mother of a child who goes missing, presumably taken by wolves in the Alaskan, a uh, remote Alaskan wilderness and about and also is about her husband played by Alexander Skarsgård who is soon returning from a uh, tour of duty overseas um, this takes a number of very significant dark turns speaking of um, the barren wilderness and the impact it can have on people this is much eerier I feel it is closer to a lot of the Scandinavian thrillers we've seen in recent years particularly ones Pillar Asbeck um, Denmark has become very well known for it and it's still his best work um, I 
I don't have much to say about this film because um, I do want to finish watching it, but I had to stop watching this. It's not a, something I do with a lot of films because about two-thirds of the way in, and if you watch this or if you've seen it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. There is a distinctly violent and I feel unnecessarily violent scene. It is harrowing to watch. I feel it is not unexploitative and it's something that I appreciate they're trying to make a broader, not unpolitical point with this, but I feel some of the carnage and the extent of the carnage they um, it ensued in order to make the points they wanted to make was necessary and to a great extent at the time I watched it did turn me off this film. Jeremy Sonny has always been on that edge regarding violence. I think he wants to push it really far. But um, this was a pretty silly context to go for yeah. <laughs> that far with the violence, uh, really. I don't think it's justified. I, the scale of it in that zone, in that environment. Mm. This was just a very off-putting film. If you're looking at the worst films of 2018, this would feature pretty high on that list for me. Wow. Uh, it, it was just detached I was not interested I, yeah, like, I, I was just like why does this film exist the thing about that trudging the, the kind of dark tone he's going for you know it needs to really grab you yeah. to, to sustain itself through you know, just a film of of pure dark, you know tension and foreboding yeah the sort of atmospheric yeah, kind of but, eeriness and there's that's nothing right. there's, but and, and when that it's, that moment happens I'm just I, like what I think like, the issue is that it's it's so cold that you're not able to really latch onto a character to care about or really feel the foreboding atmosphere much so instead watching this film just feels like work it's so trudgingly slow and then you you expect a great payoff from that but it's quite silly and it's it's sort of incomprehensible you know the the important character motivations don't seem to exist in this film it just really wants to screw with the audience basically and and that's part of the problem where this film just for most of what I was watching, you know, it just felt like, why am I doing this to myself? Like, you know, and this is a question that you shouldn't be asking if you're actually enjoying a film or even trying to enjoy a film. Even the films that I hate watch, I at least know why I'm hate watching them. You were watching it because we asked you to watch a bunch of Netflix movies. <laughs> so we'll... And I, I watch this because... Um, the Grudge well, I didn't, us. I, I didn't actually know anything about this film before it was released, and I just saw it came off my recommendations. Yeah. It's like, Alexander Skarsgård, Riley Coe, all right, I'll give it a go, why not? The, the only good thing I could think about this film was like, okay, you know, a bunch of directors come together for a director's roundtable, and they're like, you know, who's made the worst film? And you know, this director could go, hold my beer instead of hold the dark, and then oh. that's what it's so that, that's the level of not that you. Yeah. <laughs> that's the cleverest thing about this movie, by the way. That's not in... So, so that is that is Hold the Dark. <laughs> it is now streaming okay. on Netflix. The next thing we are talking about is The Sinner Season 2, which recently... Is that released. a film? It is not a film. A it's season. a TV series. Okay. It's a I didn't TV know we series. could do TV series because I wanted to talk about some well, we TV series too. Then. We talked <laughs> about The Sinner Season 1 earlier in the end, The Crown and, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, okay. and Black Mirror, the best thing on TV right now. You got me there, Mr. Falcon Screen. So, yes, so the screens can do TV too. So yes, The Sinner. So this is one of the best new shows on TV. It is starring uh, President Bill Pullman as Detective Harry Ambrose, who in both seasons now has taken on a case that is very singly open and shut in the first frames of the season. We see a crime being committed, and we left a little doubt as to who did it and the manner in which it was committed. Um, in this, he goes back to his hometown, where it involves predominantly a focus on a young boy who is the main suspect in a, a double homicide and what appears to be a cult in which he has spent a large portion of his life. Now, um, this series is good, and it, present, it presents itself as trashy with inevitable conclusions, but quite cleverly subverts them. Um, Jessica Biel, who was the main mainstay of the first series as Cara Tinetti, here returning executive producer. Um, I think this her role was emblematic of this, and I think we see a lot of those elements returning here. I think also where it cleverly subverts expectations is that in every type of series, in every detective thriller, you look for a bad person, you look for bad people, and there's an instinct to do so, and they deal with that quite well. Carrie Coon is the mainstay of this series. She We talked about her a couple of weeks ago in Widows, and the Avengers, where she played Proxy Midnight, she gets a lot more time to shine in this, and she is really good. I think we're going to be seeing a lot more from her in this to come. Um, 
where the season does let itself down is that the ending is going for broad church season one levels of transcendence. And when I say broad church season one, I still hold this up as the modern standard for this type of drama and mystery where you have a small town and group of people who are invariably all affected by the denouement once it occurs. Um, there is a revelation that attempts to be on that level. However, it is uh, the, the emotional resonance has to be mirrored and reflected in the hands of Natalie Paul's character, the uh, other detective who is working on the case. And unfortunately, she is not quite on the caliber of many of our other co-stars. Therefore, it doesn't have the impact on Broadchurch, uh, as Broadchurch did. It was quickly what they're going for. Simply, so Broadchurch, when it came to, usually when you have these very emotional scenes, they shy away. They suggest Broadchurch took the level of actually showing us those confrontations. Um, the sinner um, did not to a great extent, and it's always very disappointing. Um, so the last thing I'll say on that is there's a very hackneyed plot contrivance later in the series, which sees a character removed out of the picture when I think we wanted to a bit more about them. Otherwise, it's still a very good season, one I'd recommend checking out. Definitely see the first season first. I think it is still the standout of the two. That is The Sinner Season 2, which is now streaming on Netflix. The next thing we are talking about is Shirkers. Shirkers is a documentary film made by Sandy Tan, who was part of a group of filmmakers in the turned to from the 80s to the 90s in Singapore, um, or really a group of teenagers who put their dreams to become filmmakers into reality. And um, it is a film that opens up with a huge amount of energy that I think really captures what it's like to be a teenager who hasn't yet uh, come to believe that your dreams are, you know, are unattainable. It's really, I think it has a really propulsive style and it's about... Um, the energy of youth. It captures a turning point in independent film culture where suddenly getting your stuff out there onto the big screen started to seem possible in the wake of the success of people like uh, Jim Jamush, who there's lots of references to, or David Lynch or Kevin Smith. And it also covers, I think, um, really what interestingly and well, the historical context of the 80s and then the 90s in Singapore, a changing world as uh, their economy grew and grew and grew as well as the repressive cultural context of Singapore. So what I'm trying to say is that this is a film that covers a huge amount of ground. Um, It turns into a mystery because this film that um, is such an interesting time capsule of of so much was not able to be released. And so the rest of the film, after this section explaining how the original production of Shirkers came to be, becomes a mystery as Sandy Tan with... um, the eyes of an adult looks at what happened and um, the aftermath of the failure of this dream to come to fruition and how that's shaped her life and the lives of her friends. Um, I think this is one of the most thematically rich documentaries of the year, but I found the early history of Singapore and of the independent filmmaking scene and the original production that this group of teenagers embarked upon to be the most interesting aspect of the film. I feel like... um, I understand that this film is made from the perspective of Sandy Tan after 25 years since she embarked on the production of Sharkers, and the intervening years are, of course, going to be given a huge amount of importance, but I felt like I grasped where the film was moving with that fairly quickly, and I would rather more time have been spent on the creation of the film, but I can see a lot of people disagreeing with me there. It's not as if the film gets in less thematically interesting direction. Um... It's it's still it becomes about examining a mysterious person, and um, so maybe there's a bit less of the humanity of telling stories about people you really know that informs the early part of the film. But nonetheless, I really recommend it, especially if you have an interest in filmmaking. Um, it's I think it captures the energy that informs passionate filmmaking um, and the point in, in a lot of people's lives where everything seems possible really vividly. One of the best things on Netflix right now, for sure. I think this is the first thing I'd be watching on Netflix based on your recommendation. Most of the buzz I've heard about it. That is streaming now. We're going to be back on the podcast talking 
all things Mowgli, Cam, and the other side of the wind. I want to thank you all for tuning in and joining us in a year of film with Film Fight Club. You can subscribe on iTunes and Spotify, and we'll be back next year talking best and worst of 2018 Oscar season. It started to heat up, now a lot of speculation, but um, it's been a wonderful... Well, we guess we've got all this podcast, but it's been wonderful year talking movies and spending it together with... Um, both yourselves and everyone out there and it's always a pleasure it's been yeah, yeah. surprising really for a cynical person like me I quite enjoyed it it's been fun Chris what, 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 we, we just, we're just going to sit around like by a place like after this just like no. talking as I, if this radio is but not recording I, yeah. anything I, I, lo- I love you guys <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah well yeah sort of <laughs> that, 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 that really sums up our dynamic doesn't it I love you guys Sort of. We, we, we will be more fighting back next year, we <laughs> promise. This has been Glenn Falcon, Chris Evans, Rat the Rue. Stay tuned for the podcast if you're listening. Enjoy movies. Good night. We Good promise night. to break our promises. Merry Christmas. And we are back on the Film Fight Club podcast. Uh, that, yeah, I do love you guys. It's, 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 it's been fun this year. And we're going to have yeah. more films to fight yeah. about. More fun. <laughs> I mean, isn't it amazing as, as men to profess our love on the radio? Is it? Was it? Is it we're actually not recording this in the same room. We can't stand each other, so we recorded separate booths <laughs> in yeah. separate locations. I mean, I'm in the quarry studio right now. Damn it, okay. Everyone has to feel the love in the same room and think that we actually are there together. So, we're we, not. We, we, are, we are. We actually are. It's okay. You're we, in the quarry, though. It's too far away. Yeah, it's okay. It's far it's enough for table me. Here. Um, so, yes, we are doing a Netflix special. And <laughs> the next one we are talking about is one Farad has caught, which is... Mowgli, which is not the Jungle Book which uh, premiered a couple of years ago, though it seems to be based on the exact same source material and telling, <laughs> if not the exact same story. Is, is that is that unfair? No, that, that's not. I mean, I, I thought about this quite a lot as to what's the purpose of this movie. Like, why does this exist? Do we need another Jungle Book version or another take on another hot take on the Mowgli narrative? And why did Andy Serkis just decide to make this? And I'm still, after watching the entire film, not come to any conclusion as to why this even exists. It's a big jump from what was the film he made about with Andrew Garfield and Claire Foyle about the, the polio um, in early 20th century Britain? I, I don't know. Prob- probably something, you know. Andy Serkis What's loves to talk... Uh, tell stories about the third world and how it's impoverished and, and, and so on and so forth. Britain's not so, the third world. Well, 19th century Britain is not, 20th century Britain's not well, the third there, world. There right? is polio and there is impoverished people there. So uh, Mowgli does follow that template in some sense. But, but I'm, I'm just thinking, because, okay, the intent of this movie was uh, Circus wants to tell a story about the Kipling stories, but closer to the source material, which was a lot darker, and, I f- and he feels that the stories that have come before it have made it more kid-friendly. So he's basically trying to tell a more gritty origin story of the Mowgli narrative. Does Mowgli need a gritty origin story? And that's the question that actually is the most important one. I mean, who is this film targeted for? Do we really need a Batman Begins kind of origin <laughs> Nolan-esque? Oh, oh, okay, now, now you're selling it to me, i got to no, no, tell no, you. No, no, that's the thing. Do, do we need that for Mowgli? You know, does does he need to become? Does he go away for seven years to train with like ninjas and then come back? You'll be surprised. Oh because no! Because there is a training oh. montage with Bagheera, who is played by Christian Bale as a voice motion oh, capture. No. So it does come full circle uh, in, in that sense. I was and joking. Bage- I didn't no, see this. I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm, these uh, Batman parallels are actually not the, the Nolan Batman film parallels, are actually not that far fetched because that's the tone Circus is actually going for. He actually does think he's telling an origin story about this man-cub who will become a legend. And uh, surprisingly enough, Mowgli is promoted as Mowgli, Legend of the Jungle. That's the full title of this film. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that he does actually is going for that template, the superhero template, in dark, gritty origin superhero story, and Mowgli is going to be that superhero. Why and do we want this? That's what I'm thinking. And Bale as his sort of older mentor is Bagheera the Panther. And we have Benedict Cumberbatch playing the crippled Bengal tiger Shere Khan. We have... Uh, Kate Blanchett, who plays Car the Python with the hiss, and Scott Hansen was so good in that role, I've got to say. And She's uh, barely in it, though. And we have uh, Andy Serkis himself playing Baloo the Bear. I, I mean, was, there was no singing, wasn't yeah, there? There was no singing. Exactly. In this movie. Like, mm, I don't know. No Gary Shandling. When you have Bill Murray 
why would you need Andy Serkis? I mean, Bill Murray would have been the perfect Baloo. But that's the thing. I mean, and Andy Serkis is a great, uh, you know, I guess, physical performer. I get it. He loves motion capture. I mean, he truly does love motion capture. And if you've seen he, behind he the scenes... This, so we have to give him yeah, credit, you know, and, credit Exactly, like for Planet of the Apes and how he's able to turn... And I get it. Like he, he loves the thing, and he, and Benedict Cumberbatch loves the thing. You know, he really did become the behind the scenes the, footage the, of this yeah. film was, was quite great. Yeah, so. as he was as Smaug, uh, Smaug, Smaug, yeah. and, and you know, so that's the thing. Actually, if you were to watch, I would recommend watching the behind the scenes footage of this film because that's way more entertaining than this, this actual film. Because throughout this attempted gritty superhero template of Mowgli, of all people, I was continuously thinking. Why do we need this? And this is not a question that I should be asking. Whenever I hear the Jungle Book and how Mowgli and the Wolves story, I think of Rocco's modern life and how Heifer was actually adopted by wolves and didn't know he was adopted. And Rocco just drops it and he's like, was I adopted? And they all just say, Heifer, don't you think it was strange that you were raised by wolves? And mm-hmm. that's kind of how I feel about very adaptations of the Jungle but, Book. But, but, but even then, I mean, this the story is trying to tell these gritty philosophical takes about, you know, where do men come from and, you know, them destroying the animal kingdom and the balance of life and power. Except that's fine in small doses and you're missing the point of the film. This film is still very much a fable. It's not a philosophically gritty take on Mowgli, the superhero who somehow needs his Alfred in the form of Bagheera the Panther, played by Christian Bale. I mean, I mean, it, it's just too much for me to like the. What is this film going for? I don't know. It's it's a precursor too to the remake of The Lion King, and it is a remake. No, it, but like the, the it sets up Mowgli as a sort of like, you know, for the second part where he can be the king of the jungle, and then really, you know fight crime, essentially, in the jungle. So, essentially, he becomes a vigilante superhero of his own kingdom, a.k.a. literally the Batman, you know. <laughs> so, it's not that surprising. And, actually, we don't need a Nolan... We don't need a Mowgli imagined by Nolan. We don't need another Nolan. It's, it's too close, and it's just... We don't need a Dark Knight. We don't need a Dark Mowgli. I don't know. Okay, so for, Mowgli's so pretty dark already, like, you know, in skin tone and tone. So Mowgli Begins is now streaming on Netflix. Uh, what is also streaming on Netflix is the new Bloomhouse thriller Cam, which had its Australian premiere at the also at the Adelaide Film Festival and is now streaming over on Netflix. It is starring Madeline Brewer, who might people might know from The Handmaid's Tale. She's a key role in the series, and she plays Alice, who plays in turn a Cam girl called Lola. Her identity stolen, she's locked out of her account and then imitated by an exact lookalike in the worst nightmare, one of the worst nightmares for persons in this profession. Now, this film plays well in our fears of the disconnected, being locked out, and of, you know, that, uh, and the dissonance of being, oh, I can't access my Facebook with this, because obviously this is a very extreme version of that. It is a psychological thriller, and a lot of it is down to Brewer, who is great in the multiple roles she plays. This opens really well. As we are a viewer, we are situated in her world. We were situated in the position of the many who watch her day to day. Uh, this film has been praised for being more accurate than many other accounts of persons who are cam girls and it is also for being, I think, and fairly so empathetic and showing the situations many people in this profession will find themselves in, including police hitting on them rather than helping her out when she desperately needed help. It also shows her as a normal person, a regular person, balancing her everyday life, her family life, and in this case, hiding her profession from her mother. Um, I really liked the beginning of this film. I think it set itself up really well. And as I said, Brewer is very good in this role. I think we're going to see many things from her to come. The ending, however, greatly, greatly lets this film down. Um, There's not a real explanation for the foe or how the phenomenon that has affected others and has affected has been an impact, an impact more broadly that is desperately needed. Characters introduce them as necessary to forward the plot and then leave very, very quickly. Inclusion is mostly inexplicable and seems to make a comment about the superficiality of Alice's work, which is one arguable dimension of the broader issues at play here. There are many dimensions which are introduced in the beginning of this film and which do not get explored as a part of the conclusion. I think it is still worth seeing regardless for an actress, Madeline Brewer, who is certainly going places, and that is 
of streaming on Netflix now. The last one we are talking about and the last Netflix release we'll be chatting is The Other Side of the Wind, the very, very tardy release from one of the most renowned directors of all time. I honestly think I need to give this film another shot. This is such a dense, dense film. Uh, It's basically a constant barrage of conversation um, with a hyperkinetic editing style that proceeds and I think um, directly inspired based on reports Oliver Stone with the style he employed in films like Natural Bond Killers. It's constantly changing from different sorts of film stocks, um, cutting from different angles really furiously. Um, It's... I. It's a film I admire a lot because it's clearly breaking new ground with its technique. Um, this, I think, is the first ever found footage film. but um, And the film sometimes is a little bit... Uh, a little bit too on the nose in the way that it tries to justify and, uh, justify and address why there's all these cameras all over the place filming people. But it, it, it's unexplored territory, so I can forgive it for being a little rough in that department. It's about... Uh, a camera crew coming to film a veteran macho director described as the Ernest Hemingway of filmmaking on his birthday party slash uh, premiere party for his new film, The Other Side of the Wind. Um, Virat, what did you think of it? Honestly, uh, and I'm probably going to admit this firsthand, I wasn't in the right frame of mind. To I was not in the right frame of mind for yeah, this. Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> it feels difficult to talk about, it's honestly. It's difficult to talk about. But it's interesting to compare this with uh, Shirkers because in, in some sense they're both dealing with the ethics of filmmaking yeah. and, and what makes you know uh, a good film and the right way to make a film. And they're mm. both talking about the filmmaking as a process and an art. And in that sense, also a nice comparative piece to Goddard's The Image Book. In, yeah. in the in the way that's hyperkinetic style of, uh, and how, it, but I was prepared for what I was going in for before the image book. Orson Welles was I, so ahead of his time here. Like, and, uh, this is such a challenging film to watch. It's hard work when it begins. And I just um, yeah, and especially on Netflix. And I feel this is I think more important to discuss, especially when there's so much mediocre content on Netflix. When this, you do yeah, I, I don't think I don't think many people will watch this good, on Netflix. It's a strange good, one for them yeah. to promote because um, I think a lot of people will give up early. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, there's nonetheless. Look, there's a lot to admire in this. Um, it, the editing, even though I, f- I find it really overwhelming, sometimes sometimes it's incredible, especially with regard to the film within the film, um, which is I think a parody of Antonioni, particularly yes. Zabriskie Point. Yeah. Um, at which, but it's actually beautifully shot. Um, it, it's <laughs> you know striking editing. I think. The creativity and the fluidity that Orson Welles could show when he's in a more kind of traditional style of filmmaking um, is in great form here. I think with this film, without in a film, he's sort of saying, "See, I could make, you know, another uh, a youth culture film like Easy Driver. Uh, I'm sorry, Easy Rider or Zabriskie Point, but you know, I don't want to." There, there is a kind of a sense of bitterness about the state that Orson Welles' career was in seeping through this. I, so I found it quite cold and detached. Um, it, it, I, it's also at some point... Like it, there's, there's a lot of energy, but it's also... It's directed in a, uh, a place that isn't... There, you know, there's not much empathy not, or warmth. Yeah, there's not much love for cinema. I mean, this is basically a film that shows off... It'll be a great study for film students to see yeah, what's like all you can do. It's about being in the a film medium, yeah, exactly. But, but but without the without the passionate love, yeah. behind, you know that's why where you can the I mean, comparison to Shirkers is interesting because Shirkers is is about people at the yeah. at the dawn of their careers seeing unlimited possibility, and Orson Welles is discovering rich new veins of cinema to mine, but it seems you know almost like he's he has a sadness about him to it, like yeah. The energy that you expect to be accompanying these kinds of eureka moments was there in Citizen Kane, and we've come a long way since then. And, and, but it's it's interesting uh, with the other side of the wind that Wells discovers what all you can do with the medium, but with that realization comes this resigned sadness that right. he can't actually like he can do so much more than what he feels 
the audience is going to and, accept and what or he feels the like he's, is going he's to allow. being given the chance to do yeah and, it's almost like well, and this you know, is actually you can i feel guess the sense a very of lost time in this personal moment personal statement that look can you just allow me to do more but at the same time that could have been a really personal indictment but instead it just comes across as this cold attached you know yeah. um, bitter the, kind of that, accusation, which is yeah, weird. The the editors of this film were put in a difficult position because Orson Welles had edited, I think, two or three sequences from this film, and so the rest of this film was reconstructed in order trying to emulate the editing style that Orson Welles um, used in his own sequences, as well as following his notes for how he wanted the film to be put together. But I think just because Orson Welles had um, this initial plan doesn't mean he would have stuck to it completely in the making of his films because he said that the creation of this film was all about trying to find accidents. So I think it was something that was meant to organically grow along the way. And there's there's some problems in here that I wonder if Orson Welles would have, um, you know, maintained for if he had had the final say over the product. Like there's a sequence when um, people are watching a film and you can hear characters discussing what's going on on screen over it. And it, I felt like, I know that Orson Welles is trying to overwhelm you with the barrage of information and opinions and people talking around the movie and talking around the characters and talking around John Huston's director, Jake Hannaford. Um, but I still felt like maybe he would have seen that this is actually too much and pared it down when it came to the actual point of editing. But instead, people have to follow Welles' template um, I mean, it's difficult. The scenes that I know that he edited um, were by far and away the most impressive in the film. How is it that this came about now? Well, there have been legal and personal problems holding up the release of this for decades. Orson Welles, you know, had problems with producers, so he shot the film in fits and starts over years. And then he didn't have access to the film to complete it. I think the rights shifted around between people. I'm not completely sure about all of the specifics, but I started watching and didn't get to complete a very interesting documentary on Netflix, which accompanied the release of this, which is called They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, which is covering the making of what Orson Welles wanted to do and how things went wrong. Um, So I've only watched the first 20 minutes of of that before this episode went to air, but... I'd like to uh, catch the rest of it because it seems actually very interesting. I might actually try to catch that before I watch the other side of the wind. I think I think you'd actually get a lot out of it that way, because especially for people who aren't Orson Welles experts. From what I can see, that doc- this documentary is really contextualizing it well in terms of where what it means within his career and um, the the time and place that it was made. No, it's it's interesting to see. I mean, that how far that or how little we've come from that kind of thing about empowering directors and Mm. how much directors have a say in terms of their final product. I mean, even directors today face similar problems in terms of the final product that they're actually intending to put Ah. out. But earlier in this episode, we uh, bemoaned the fact that George Clooney had such creative control of Zababacon, and we've historically bemoaned the control of George Lucas over the Star Wars Orson Welles is someone who was screwed over in you know, um, away from making films that I think would have been far better if he had been trusted. He's one of those people who deserve the trust. But The Magnificent Abyssins feels too short and famously had an hour cut from it by the studio, which is destroyed and has never been able to be restored. Uh, Touch of Evil was released in a mangled form. And with the restoration that was made in 1998, we can see that Orson yeah. Welles' version is definitely far superior. So I, I can understand this guy being frustrated with some of the which, which, turns that his career had had. Which is why I think the comparison with Goddard is actually very right. interesting. And it's definitely there's some because the late Goddard and one of the most striking things about late Goddard is that he is somehow able to have complete creative control well, over his work and he almost just doesn't care. He, well, he scaled it. He scaled down his production, but Orson Welles here is almost trying to make a, a huge film that's yeah. dense but on a tiny budget. Um, it is definitely a post Goddard film with the kind of like the hyper editing and yeah. the inserts and the fil- you know text on screen fil- and commenting on film within a film. Um, Cause, extremely post modern. Because I do feel even in their personalities mm-hmm. and and how they approach cinema and how they became increasingly acerbic and bitter personalities mm-hmm. also mirror Goddard and Wells. Probably mirrors the way that a lot of acti- <laughs> of uh, uh, artists feel. Yeah, <laughs> and their journey. Because Goddard is now 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 seen as this kind of <clears throat> reclusive. Uh, person with a bitter tongue and an acerbic mind who people can't get to. And in this beautiful film with Agnes Varda, 
uh, faces places where Agnes Varda is trying to meet Goddard and uh, he doesn't agree to meet her. Uh, when leaves a note, which is not the nicest note in the world, even though they've been good friends for I don't know how long. So it, it's it's interesting to see how Goddard is almost the last bastion of this kind of generation of filmmakers who truly... Well, as we spoke about were, last week, Nicholas Rogue and Bernardo Bertolucci have died. Yeah. You know, the, um, the, the, the masters of cinema are dropping off you know, yeah. one by one by one, the people and, and who were really there through the golden ages of the of the medium. Scorsese bemoans that you know that filmmaking is never going to be the same. And let's see what the Irishman brings up on Scorsese's on, on still doing on Netflix. On as Netflix, well. yeah, it's so a strange. Let's, let's see how that that's going to turn out as well. It's a strange time for cinema. It's what yeah. a strange time for an Orson Welles film to come back to us. But in a way, it, it, it makes we're, sense we're, when we're compacting films. Yes, that's yeah. right. When films are meant to be. Uh, can be packaged, but are, can, are meant to be seen or adaptable to any device or any yeah. format or viewing where they should. And I mean, what, what I admire about Roma so much is that Coron, knowing that it would probably be on seen on small screens and even on mobile phones, still made it to be seen on as big screen as possible mm. and strove for that. I mean, I mean, this brings us to probably one of the first discussions we had that became the genesis of the show. And I remember talking to you and, and Chris, mm. I mean, at the, the film festival uh, or even before that, and when I saw it's you in the corner film, yeah. typing away, it was one of the first things I said when I met you, Glenn, about what is, what is the purpose of cinema today? I mean, is it to create spectacle or is it to create niche yeah. kind of targeted filmmaking that people can watch in their own in the comfort of their own home well, I mean what is the The point? other side of the wind being on Netflix is so interesting because it, it is really a film that um, is made at this transitional point in the 1970s and it's asking what is the place of cinema going forward What's the, where's the place for the old guys and the classicism or uh, are things really being shaken up by new blood and new approaches to cinema and so strange that now people are going to when this film is finally released, people are going to watching it on their phones or in fits and starts. Like the, it really makes you think about how the place of cinema is constantly shifting. But here's the thing: now that Netflix have seemingly and or inevitably will win the ideological war with the you know uh, fre- with the fraternity of uh, French uh, critics and industry mm. liaisons who <laughs> back Khan, mm. um, and they are now saying, oh. Actually, it is in our commercial interests, and we like the fact that films like Roma are getting a broader cinematic is that, release. Is, has there been some development in that? I didn't hear. Simply by virtue of having yeah, Roma getting the Oscar buzz. Roma, they're releasing in, in, in international territories a semantic release. Yeah, so, that, yeah. that's the thing. It's Netflix going to be oh, like if people want to see it on the big screen, here are opportunities. Oh, by the way, you come to the screening, maybe you should sign up to a Netflix account. Yeah. That's what they're going to do, mm. and you're going to have opportunities to see these on the big screen. People are going to seek out opportunities. Um, the the wills, as we said earlier, the world see these on as big screen as possible. But honestly. Uh, the one problem I do have, and I, I'm going to use the Filmstruck example for that, is when we trust uh, studios like Netflix or you know Time Warner or Amazon or whatever to have control over the movie choices, they I'm not sure whether they actually do care about the cinematic medium as much as you know what's the algorithm going to recommend for these people, and they're going to produce as much. You know, we're going to have 10 of those Kissing Boots uh, movies versus one of Roma. Is 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 the, Are we happy with that progression and one of the Irishmen versus... And this is going to get buried in, in whatever because it's going to recommend what's more popular and what kind of movies you watch. So we're going to have a dedicated cinephile niche audience who only watches The Other Side of the Wind and maybe then mm. they'll get recommended. But, 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 there's, there's two other sides to number one. Yeah. People will discover new interesting films they would never otherwise be able to see. And secondly, the fact is that we talk about it as if, and we do, we're in a position where we have access to festivals like the Sydney Film Festival. I just did a tour, I just did a trip through regional Australia. I was away for two weeks and I can tell you the communities I visited do not have access to cinema. Some do, most don't, and they will have access the same time we do to all these films. This is reaching new audiences and distinct, very new audiences in a way cinema has not been able to get to do, and that's hugely significant. I just wish that the amount of films that the streaming services held was, was were much larger, honestly. To me, the streaming services weren't won't be a great replacement for video stores until it has pretty much everything. You know, I want I want to be able to log on to Netflix and type in a film from 1934 and find it. Yeah, I, I want I want the you know the vaults of studios archive collections to just flood a single or or you know every service, and, and you know instead of uh, a limited selection and competition between the the so you need to have multiple subscriptions to multiple services if you're a cinephile. Yes. 
I think yeah we Stan are doing pretty well in terms of getting a lot of old content Stan on. Stan is good but it could be we could it could be so much better you know the way that contracts work where a streaming service can have something for just 6 months or just a few years it feels like a lot of films are just vanishing all the time and and there's um I don't that's, know. That's the one I thing think... I do hate, and that's why I, I like the idea of hard copies and having Blu-rays yeah, and DVDs, too. which is and, uh, I don't want to be pressured as like this is leaving Netflix next month yeah, to watch yeah. it before it leaves. And I think I'm sorry, uh, I'm paying for a service, so I feel like I'm I not think, leasing yeah. it. I and feel like I'm just always renting these movies. I also think people I want to own it. People don't want to. I think a lot of the time um, have to look outside of the streaming service that they're already paying a subscription fee for. Yeah. So if a film is not one. Netflix. Yeah. Or is is on Stan only? I think people, yeah, you know, it, people don't want to go to iTunes to rent it or subscribe it, to a different service. Impractical to have like five or six different so renting services. I think, you know, per month, yeah, yeah, it's like people give, we're giving too much power to Netflix. Essentially, it's just like Fo- yeah, no one Netflix had, no is one deciding had, what you're going to watch. Yeah, no one had be Fox, mostly their own productions. No one had Foxtel and Optus growing up. You either had Foxtel or Optus. If you had one of those, we didn't. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and the great thing about it, like you know, for example. I'm willing to pay a premium price. For example, when the Criterion launched their Criterion channel, after film struck closed down, they're going to launch their own service, Sangot, so we have the Criterion list saved. Uh, I'm going to pay for that, I'm, you know, and I'm happy to pay 100 120 bucks because I know I'm going to get that resource. Okay, but uh, but would you subscribe to a Marvel channel? Because that's, that's what that's, Disney want to do. That's the thing, you know. And <laughs> not just but subscribe Disney to Netflix. Star Wars, and they own all but the Marvel films, I think and they own Netflix Fox. Netflix are trying to establish um, a dominance before Disney can launch their own subscription service. But, which, but that's the Fair thing. enough. But Disney, I think, are going too far. Disney want a channel for all of those things. Like, you have to pay a separate fee for Star Wars, a separate fee for Disney Princess movies, but, a separate but, fee for Marvel. It's, it, it's insane to think about it, that the fact that we 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 are talking about paying a premium price for somehow some of these modern movies which are not on the same level as some of the other. It's going to work, you know. It's going to work. I know it's going to work. A because, they, because, a, because the they have the volume, but B it's because those are the films that are young everyone wants are going to a everyone want, but the kids are going to want to watch over and over and over. Again. The parents right. think, okay, this is frozen. I can just stream it ten times. No, and have to rent like, man, doesn't it just right? represent it like the the narrowing down of the things people watch? If you're going to pay money, death. just I, oh man, I need to see those Marvel films again and again and again and again. Doesn't that make you less likely to pay for other subscription services and look elsewhere? I can't if, think of a if, Marvel film I've revisited except for the first Iron yeah. Man, Thor, the first Avengers, and Civil War. But, I mean, man, it, it just I'm, seems... It's, it's like the narrowing of choices as corporatism goes further, you know, to yeah. think of people paying multiple subscription Look, fees if, to, for different strands of, of content put out by one company. Man, I hate this future. I mean, <laughs> if I'm ever going to have kids, and that's not a certainty by any means because, well, it's me. Uh, you know, the, one of the first films I'm going to get them to watch is the Apootrology by Satish Ray and then The Bicycle Thief. So I'm going to make sure they grow up right, at least in that, in that regard. So, well, future kids, you know, you know what's coming. Are you sure you. you're not going to watch, show them in, in Despicable Me 12? Look, if the if, search if, for more minions. If, the, the thing is, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure they're going to cry. Joke, but. I'm sure they're going to cry for that. But I'm going to be a hard taskmaster and make sure that I drill them some basics of cinema yeah. right, and then they can have a cheat they, day. They're going to One stand over day. you on your deathbed, and you know, <laughs> as gonna, they put the, the pillow down on your face, a, a they'll mini, say, a minion pillow. "This is because of uh, the Apo trilogy." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's definitely going to be like a fitting end to uh, my yeah. life. In, in my house, it's going to be James Bond and Rocky, and it's going to be Star Wars and Star. Track. Just get out of here! Just, just, just. It's a wonderful series. <laughs> no, great. I mean it's it's great, but like, I don't want the next generation to remember the bastion of cinema as to like this is what we did. Yes, we had these are fun films, but these are not films I'll be that happy I remember. Enough if they even remember that, that cinema was a thing. But that's that's <laughs> part of the problem, and I feel that you know, part of the spectacle of movies for me has always been. The childlike enthusiasm of like, oh my god, I didn't think this was possible in the visual You're showing medium. me something I didn't expect. Yeah, oh, you know, the, the showmanship, 70, the 70mm, the 35mm, images. you know, the Dolby sound. Yeah. And, and and just the idea that I didn't think this could work visually or just something I would read in a book and then I'd see, I'm like, oh my god. The visuals to be better than what you imagine <laughs> when you read it. Exactly, sometimes. And, but now it's it's all exactly how you imagine it. It's not even superseding your expectation. It's, if nothing else... There's a dearth of imagination in Hollywood yeah. filmmaking right now. It's all... Everything is shot, reverse shot. Marvel movies are classic examples of that. And, and I'm just like... But at this point, it's silly to look for anything more in Marvel films. 
But if that's going to be the no, future, but, but like then, you say, you know, I, and I haven't seen it, but the new Bumblebee film is getting a lot of traction because I, people are saying it's yeah, good but and even, toned down. I'm sure it's better than the Michael Bay films, but I doubt it's going to be like I doubt it's going to be that interesting to me. Well, but because even, it's just I think that the expectation is so low these days. Well, Logan was an exception. Uh, Infinity War, in but some respects, Logan was is too. a decent film. We're but not even not talking about amazing. a good film. Logan I mean, isn't, isn't incredibly is like, good because everything is decent. Is, I, everything I, is so terrible. If exactly. Anything is decent. It just yeah, like Logan. Looks I don't good. think was worth the the accolades that I'm it sorry. received. I just feel like are we the same person now, Chris? No, we might be. Well, I'm hoping for next year our review of Infinity War Endgame. The new trailer is out. Endgame oh, God, like, is going I'm, to. I just think the Taylor Swift song. The one thing. The one good. thing I'm really happy about is that. I really hope it is the end game and then Marvel just has it's to not. It's not. reset the template. And I'm um, just, Spider-Man's up for at least two more films. Oh, no, God, the I'm template's still. worked for them. It makes them billions of dollars and so it'll stay until it stops making billions of dollars. <laughs> yes, they'll make, they'll make release movies as they will Why Star Wars take every risks? year until long after we are all dead. Yeah. But you know what? Actually, I think the Star Wars series will but, f- cave in on but itself. The part part of that is solo. Uh, can't be can't be too long. Talking talking about Bumble- the old Republic. Talking about Bumblebee, the other sort of franchise I'm thinking about is the Bond new Bond twenty five. Kerry Fukunaga has roped in the Jamie Chazelle's uh, DOP to shoot uh, the new but Bond. We had film. the we had Hoytman Hoytima who shot Interstellar and her on Spectre, and it wasn't a great film. Okay, yeah, man. Oh, but, like, Spectre you know. was, I think, underrated. It wasn't but as good Fikunaga, as like, Skyfall. Uh, at least he's a more competent director, so I feel like the director DOP combination. Oh, that's, I that's wish we could have seen the Danny Boyle. Late. I wish we could have seen the Danny Boyle one. It sounded interesting. I oh, see, but, but here's the, I, I actually I, I don't know because here's the thing: there's never been a director of a James Bond film who is arguably bigger than the series, or can accept more creative control or their own creative. Mm. James Bond has always been handled by caretakers who yep. have a very uh, who follow a formula and that works. When they're diverted from that, they haven't been great films. Look at what happened with... I, I like Down of the Day, but still, it wasn't one of the best films. Quantum no. of Souls is another good example. No, no I mean... The, films some, some, have some, as interesting auteurs behind them as the, Danny Boyle, though. The, the, two, the two Bond films that did divert from the formula are two of my favourite Bond films, which are the two Timothy Dalton films. I really like really, They didn't really they, I, the I think they did divert. They printed a radically different Bond and he was more humane. It was radically different and, and from Roger was, Moore, but it was still classic James yeah, Bond. Game. It was but, but he was still James dealing Bond. from like actual depression, and he was dealing with issues, and he was very open about it. Roger actually, Moore and Sean Connery actually, did hint at that, as did George Lazenby. Uh, but, okay, that's campy, though. Like, no, no, at the end of Automatic Secret Service, uh, Sean Connery at the beginning of Diamonds of Forever, Roger Moore at the beginning of Your Eyes I'm Only. I'm sorry, are you saying Diamonds of Forever? Okay, you're saying Diamonds of Forever. Yeah, the, the beginning Diamonds was, forever, he was... Forever. He was rough in that. He was going... It was a direct sequel to Automatic Secret Service. He was going after all the people who killed his wife. I mean, was, but yeah, that's, there was real a, trauma that, involved in that That was opening. just such a classic male macho way of dealing with trauma it's not even dealing with that's trauma James, that's one element of how James Bond does deal with trauma as he did at the beginning of Quantum of Solace and uh, and and the end of that film and many more to come to be sure um, we've gone a little bit off track from Netflix so I think we're going to wrap up no, no, but I, I think this was actually shortly. a really nice sort of wrap up to like what is the state of cinema because I think that's an important question what awesome we'll say uh, uh, the other side of I, I, the hope. hope he joins the other side of hope. The other the other side of hope. Of, yeah. Say you hope he joins us. I, I hope he would join us if you like. Yeah, it would be an interesting <laughs> one. I think Orson Welles, if you, when you look at um, "They'll Love Me When I'm Dead," he shows he, lo- despite the bitterness that's coming through in um, "The Other Side of the Wind," the film, he shows a lot of love of just talking. Talking to people, meeting, I mean, you know, talking about the state of the medium, talking about cinema. I think he's it'd be an great amazing to have him in the show. orator, to be honest. I he's mean, an incredible orator, he's, it's true. He, and also, he's just got a very warm and compassionate style of speaking. Like, he yep. wants to carry you along. He, he's not someone who speaks down to you. He actually has incredible knowledge. Everyone knows that. But he's not like Hitchcock in that way, where Hitchcock is very didactic. Yep. Orson Welles is very opposite. Think, he actually tries compassion. to make you understand his perspective, where Hitchcock yeah. would just be like, look at how clever Hitch- I am. Hitchcock Welcome to the Hitchcock show. Remo- removed. Yeah. Yeah. We, actually, we actually haven't given Hitchcock enough credence to discussion on the would show. Would you guys so like to do next special yeah. next year? Yes. I'd be yeah. up for that. Okay. We actually haven't really talked about Hitchcock very much Which, at all. But we've yep. talked about Green Fog and stuff, so actually it would be a good precursor. because yeah, that was the first time. Yeah, that was the first time. Alfred Hitchcock, probably the most famous filmmaker of all time. Yeah, that's right. 
friend because was mentioned this is, second, this, is the, this is the second time. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's amazing. Honestly, to be honest, the, the most honestly, the what even is Hitchcock <laughs> when we have David Lynch and <laughs> exactly, Terrence Malick? Exactly. We, 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 <laughs> Ooh, we're, he's joking. We, he's we, joking. We, I am joking. No, no, we're not. I mean, I'm Ooh, not oh. because we've picked our camp and we know which camp we're <laughs> we are. We're loyalists, okay? We don't no. desert people. Especially not Lynch and Malick because they don't deserve to be deserted. No. No. So thank you. Glenn, for Glenn, us agreed for with, <laughs> Glenn agreed with the Holy Church of Malik and Lynch. I, I, I don't think they should be deserted. I think they have strong fan bases for a reason. I just wish right. they'd make you know better films. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, <laughs> uh, thank you for joining us for another year of Film Fight Club. We'll be back in 2019 with all the shenanigans, all the films, and all the films you will love, that you will hate, and Thanks. that you will ponder. Yeah. Honestly, thank you so much for putting up with us. Thanks I mean, for listening. I, I know. Yeah, actually, yeah, like, we, I, know, I know we don't say it enough, but. We can ramble on for some time. Yeah, you yeah. know, we, 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 we test your I patience. Think these are, this has been one of the most rambly episodes in a while, so thanks for sticking through till the end. And or if yeah. you skipped through to this part, I don't blame you. <laughs> oh, can you believe this guy? Oh, we, we solved that. We, 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 we've discovered all those mysteries. It feels you just going to have to rewind and listen. Yeah, that's okay. We, we, we did solve a lot of problems in film. We got through just fine without you. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, no, really. Thank you for, for being with us. Yeah. Thank we really appreciate it. Music, we love it whenever we hear it from anyone who's listened to the show and you know who's enjoyed it. So, and if, not just know, our family. Send us a message because that's the kind of thing that keeps us doing this. Yeah, and actually, yeah, we, we, fight about we're and real just, people, yeah, and we, we, love we really love to hear. Yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah, thanks. No, we're, we're nice, warm-hearted people. We're not. Maybe Hitchcock's. speak for yourself. We, we, we hate. <laughs> Remember <laughs> our new slogan. <laughs> we we need to stay on brand for it. We hate. We hate. Yeah, represent. Respect. Film Fight Club. R-E-S-B-C-T. Anyway. So have a wonderful night. Have a wonderful New Year. Have a wonderful Christmas. Have a wonderful holidays. Enjoy the Christmas movies. Enjoy, Enjoy life. Non- non-Christmas movies. Enjoy Enjoy life. living, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah actually, and, uh, do something. I don't know. Do you guys do anything and, uh, other than Your homework movies? over the summer is to write me a 10,000-word <laughs> essay about how life, how movies <laughs> should best be enjoyed in your life. Exactly. What, what place <laughs> does cinema have in your life? Hint, if you use references from Tree of Life, you'll get bonus points. <laughs> uh, no, no, you won't. Not from Glenn. <laughs> from Veranded Chris, yes. Use any Malik references, but yeah. Do that essay. Do life. Live life. Do life. Live Cho- life. Choose life. <laughs> choose life. <laughs> 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 On the subject of Danny Boyle. Good night. Yeah. Love. Bye.